in a sense, part of being innovative, part of taking risks, part of of, of growing and learning in your life in, in any realm is being willing to take interpersonal risks, you know, being willing to do things that might not immediately earn the approval of others. Learning, growing, failing well is about saying, yes, I can take these interpersonal risks and pausing to take a breath and realize, no, I won't die, you know, if so-and-so doesn't like me in that moment. Um, I, I will, in fact, I will be contributing to the team. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Coldine, to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome Kevin Coldiron. All right. Thanks, Niels. And welcome, everyone. So fail fast, fail often. If we want to innovate and thrive in the modern world, that's what we're told we need to do. Um, our guest today says that's not the full picture. What we really need to do is learn how to fail well. Um, and that's harder than it sounds because it means fighting against some very deep-held cultural and behavioral biases that we all have. Um, luckily, she's written a book to tell us um, how we can do it. Um, our guest is Amy Edmondson. She's a professor at the Harvard Business School and author of The Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well which recently won the 2023 Business Book of the Year Award by the Financial Times. Um, Amy Edmondson, um, Happy New Year. Uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be with you. Uh, first of all, congratulations on the um, FT Award. That's a, I, that's a very big deal, uh, very stiff competition. Uh, so um, uh, congratulations. Thank you. I was um, absolutely astounded, and, and particularly because of the competition. As you mentioned, it was extraordinary. Yeah, we don't want to take uh, you know any credit for that, but I, I would say that uh, our first guest last year was Chris Miller, um, who um, agreed to join the show and then won the uh, Business Book of the Year Award oh! 2022. <laughs> so, Incredible. How same wonderful. Same thing happened with you wow. this year. Wow, wow. Okay, so, you know, you begin the book with uh, a really fascinating personal story, um, and I, I thought that might be a good way to start our talk today. So 
your your research career started with a, a failure and it one that was big enough that you say you asked yourself whether or not you really belonged, you know, you, whether you had chosen the right path. And um, you were studying, uh, I believe, medication errors at hospitals, hospital teams, and you had the reasonable hypothesis that effective teams ought to make fewer mistakes, fewer errors. You had developed a good way to measure effectiveness. You spent a lot of time collecting data. You collected the data, ran the numbers, and they showed the exact opposite of what you were expecting. So how did you react to that failure? And, and how did that you know, really trigger the beginning of basically your, your career of investigating uh, and understanding failure? Well, I suppose my initial reaction, I reacted badly to that failure in, in that I was scared of it. I thought that it really meant I wasn't cut out for this kind of work. And, you know, with, with what I know about failure today, and certainly soon after that study, um, it was a very bad and counterproductive reaction because in research, you will encounter failures. Because in research, by definition, you're in new territory. You're trying to answer questions that haven't been answered before. And you do your homework, you have a hypothesis, but you can be wrong. And that's not shameful. That's part of the, the journey. Now, this one was a little trickier, but I'll just answer your question by saying, I don't think I reacted as well as I would like to, like others to react today. So how did you then go about, you know, kind of overcoming that initial reaction, revising your hypothesis and moving forward? Yes, and that's, of course, what it's all about. You know, so none of us like failure, but what we do have to do is get used to learning from it and, and must relish the opportunity to learn from it. So within a few hours after that disappointment, um, I, of course, had to force myself to ask the question, well, what might this mean? Like, how do we explain better teams with better coordination um, end up displaying higher, not lower, adverse drug events, really error-based, error-based negative outcomes. Um, and it occurred to me, sort of all of a sudden, that the way we were collecting the data on the error rates was itself potentially flawed in that it, it was essentially going day by day to the units, asking people what was going on, what do you see, reviewing the charts. And it suddenly occurred to me that in fact, well, this is obvious. Nobody likes to speak up about error. Nobody like, and if 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 an error uh, didn't produce something, you know, that's impossible to hide, it's quite human to want to hide it. So I began to wonder whether this relationship between better teamwork and higher error rights might, in fact, be a reporting bias rather than actual error rates, but rather reported error rates. And then I thought, you know, maybe reported error rates are not only not the full story, but maybe they are systematically biased in favor of better teams. In other words, the better teams are more willing to speak up honestly and candidly about what's really going on, in part because they understand what's at stake, in part because they genuinely, you know, want to get better. They understand that mistakes happen and by only by catching and correcting them quickly can patients be given safe care. So that I, I suddenly thought, and I later thought of this as a blinding flash of the obvious, you know, maybe the better teams are, are the ones who are more comfortable reporting, more honest, more candid. And I called that difference 
in my own mind, interpersonal climate. And maybe interpersonal climate differs across teams, even in the same organizational culture. And of course, once I had that idea, that's a far cry from being able to prove it. And I was quite biased in, in favor of finding such a thing. So I had to hire a research assistant who knew nothing about um, my findings, knew nothing about my new hypothesis, but but I, I hired him to go spend time in these units and just as a kind of ethnographer, anthropologist, what is it like to work here? What is it like to work there? And he you know, collected lots of observational and interview data and you know, ultimately came back and said, wow, they're really different as places to work. I said, tell me more. And, you know, he ended up saying, well, some of them are just feel very open um, and, and others feel very, his word, not mine, authoritarian and, and more fear. They, 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 um, they say, you don't want to, if you speak up about a mistake, you get put on trial, you get made to feel like a two-year-old, you know, those kinds of very evocative uh, language. So, that led me, that is not a definitive sort of support for my new hypothesis, but it led me to believe that it was at least a plausible interpretation of the data. And I had to then go on later in my PhD program to, to design a study where I really measured on purpose differences in interpersonal climate across teams, even within the same organization, and found that, yes, indeed, this, this notion of candor and openness varied a great deal across teams, and it was predictive of ultimately team performance. So that failure, that initial failure started me on, in fact, what I would argue was, is, was a more interesting research direction. So if I hadn't had the failure, I would not have probably had the subsequent academic success that I had. And I, th that, I, I just love that story because I, I, I suspect a lot of us can can kind of point to those um, events in our own, in our own lives, in our own careers, um, and so it's just nice for someone to say, "Hey, this is uh, this is this is you know you you need to, as you say, cultivate or welcome these sort of things." You said that you know in the process of revising your hypothesis, you you kind of went with your new idea to, and I can't remember if it was your research director or if it was a senior person at the hospital. It might have been a senior person at the hospital, and you said, "Hey, this is what what I think is going on." And they reacted very, very skeptically to your new hypothesis that it was a reporting issue. And you say that turned out to be a gift um, because it forced you to, I guess, to like double down <laughs> yes. on, on your research. Yeah, it was very understandable, right? So the, the, the PI, the principal investigator of the larger study, and you have to understand my part of the study was, a, was small. It was a very, this was a big study funded by the NIH uh, National Institute of Health to assess and try to assess accurately the actual rate of adverse drug events, you know, due to human error um, and due to, not due to human error, but I was particularly interested in the error-based uh, adverse events. And so their aim, you know, their principal aim was to come up with a kind of definitive estimate of the percent of patients who are potentially harmed in, while, while, getting care in a hospital. And so what I was saying inadvertently was, you may not be getting the actual error rate. You may be getting a distorted signal of, of error rates. And that's not a welcome message. So I was the messenger bringing something unwelcome. And to their credit, I think they didn't have any sense of 
the possibility of interpersonal climate varying. You know, these were hospitals, two hospitals, in fact, with very strong, shall we say, corporate cultures, right? And and strong training programs. And the idea that you'd have sort of pockets of of, of learning orientation that really varied across units wasn't something anyone expected or, or believed uh, possible. So, um, you know, I was lucky in a way. So the part where I said I was lucky because then I had to really, I, you know, if he had just said, oh, yeah, of course, then I could have sort of said, yeah, of course. But instead, his skepticism made me say, okay, what data do I have already? And then what data could I get to show the plausibility of this new argument? And the data I was able to get was using a research assistant, again, blind to the hypothesis, but just to explore and see what what it was like to work in these units. And the data I already had that I almost didn't even think of the first time around was in the team diagnostic survey, I had inserted, because this was a study of error, I inserted a single item um, that was, if you make a mistake in this team, it's held against you, right? And, And that, it turned out, I just decided, okay, let's go look at that item. And that turned out to vary a lot across units, right? Some people said, yeah, it's held against you. Other people said, no, not held against you. So then, you know, crossing my fingers, I correlated that single item at the team level with the error rates at the team level. And lo and behold, if your if your team scored high on this is held against you, your error rates were strikingly low. And so again, that could be just, you know, better teams are sloppy, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But Again, not definitive, but it sure was suggestive evidence that people report errors when they feel it's not going to be held against them and that that, and that, that varies across teams. And later, you know, much later um, in the subsequent study, I called that climate variable psychological safety. And that really, it really took off in the academic literature because it had such predictive value. But if you measured that, and it ended up with that one item was is still in the measure today, but it has other it has six other items as well that sort of capture you know it's easy to ask for help if you are in over your head things like that that people just feel more able to be candid and open with their teammates um, when when psychological safety is high, and it just turns out to be a, a variable that really is good at predicting team performance um, in various other things like job satisfaction and, and um, learning behavior and so forth. So that, I thought that was a great way to, to start the book. And, and um, you say um, later on that if you want to understand, so if you want to get to a point where you can you know, cultivate the ability of failing well, you have to kind of start with a clear-eyed diagnosis of different types of failure. Um, so tell us what the, you know, take, let's take a step back. Tell us what the different types of failure are. Yes, and this is, I think this is so important because it helps uh, navigate the, you know, is fail fast, fail often a good idea or not? And, and I, as you said at the beginning, sometimes yes, but other times no, or in other contexts no. So the three kinds of failure are, I call them basic failure, complex failure, and intelligent failure. And basic failures are single cause failures, usually human error. And they are in familiar territory. There is a recipe 
And alas, we left an ingredient out by mistake and we got a failure. Um, basic doesn't mean small. They can be very large. There are plane crashes that were due to basic failure. They can be tiny. You know, you locked your keys inside the house by mistake and you'll have to sort that out later. Um, complex failures are multi-causal failures, also usually in, in somewhat familiar territory, but they are the, the perfect storm failures. They are the kinds of failures that happen when a handful of factors line up in just the wrong way, where any one of those factors on its own would not cause a breakdown or failure, but the, the way they lined up does. And that's, you know, they're with, with complex information technology systems, with troubling weather patterns, we can easily sort of identify that the propensity for complex failures is on the rise. Now, I think it's easy to see that neither of those kinds of failures are good or desirable. We don't want them. In fact, we want to do our very best to prevent them. The third kind are the kind we need to welcome and, and want more of, and they are intelligent failures. They are undesired results of thoughtful experiments in new territory. They are the kinds of failures that occur because there was literally no other way to find out that information without trying it. So my, my um, first research project that we talked about was an intelligent failure, right? It, again, didn't feel great at the time, but it was a thoughtful foray into new territory. And I did not know, nor do I think I could have in advance, that the error variable, the error data might have been somewhat flawed by human behavior. And, and so I, I had to kind of deal with that failure, but it was ultimately something I uh, learned from. And of course, scientists have intelligent failures, you know, every day of the week, probably, and uh, inventors and people in R&D. But, but um, all of us, I think, have to welcome intelligent failures in our life if we want to make progress, which, of course, we do. The, the second half of the book, and I, I want to come back to kind of complex failures in a second, but, you know, give, given that we're just talking about intelligent failures, the second half of the book is, you call it kind of practicing the science of failing well, practicing the, you know, getting to those intelligent failures. And um, you said that's not that easy because we're held back by kind of a, a, a set of biases that are baked into our, our psyche, and you called them... Um, prepared fears. So there's, there's kind of a, things I think we all identify with, right? Loud noises, sudden movements, dangerous animals. But you, you, had, you said another one that I hadn't heard before and that really resonated. It's basically the fear of being kicked out of the tribe, right? Um, being banished. And, um, you know, that, that, you know, you said, well, that's, it's, it's logical that we would have that fear, right? Because, you know, in our evolutionary past, if you get kicked out of the tribe, you might starve or freeze. So we're really kind of pre-programmed to, you know, <laughs> not do anything to, you know, annoy someone who has the power to do that to us. Um, and that manifests itself in our modern world in this kind of, um, you know, bias against reporting mistakes or errors, because that risks the wrath of your, of your boss or your partner or whatever. And, um, that risks banishment. And, um, so I, I guess I hadn't really thought of that before. Really, that really resonated for me. Can you can you tell us about that? 
Well, you know, that's so the the discovery of or idea of prepared fears um, comes from the field of evolutionary psychology, where 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 psychologists have looked at again those the things that were in a sense born with that you didn't have to learn you didn't have to learn to be afraid of a loud noise because your parents told you to be afraid of a loud noise, um, but you just you just it's spontaneous and. Our argument, Jim Dieterd and I, a former PhD student, fabulous um, professor at UVA, University of Virginia, um, we argued that um, this fear of rejection, this fear of ostracism, um, had to be also a prepared fear because it is so widely felt, so widely shared um, across cultures, across you know, uh, across individuals, and it's and. And, and again, as you said, it's very easy to understand why that would be something that evolution would favor because you um, you need to do things to make sure people want you around or else you really could die of starvation, exposure, et cetera. Um, and, but it's not terribly helpful in the modern world, the modern world that requires us to speak up openly um, with dissenting views or with observations of an error you're about to make that might crash the plane. And, and this, you know, this very strange, it's, it's so illogical to think that there could be co-pilots holding back when they see their senior officer make, you know, a, a, a dangerous error. And yet the history of aviation accidents is full of such moments. Um, so it's, it's, it's powerful and unhelpful. And, and so, in a sense, part of being innovative, part of taking risks, part of, of, of growing and learning in your life in, in any, any realm is being willing to take interpersonal risks, you know, being willing to do things that might not immediately earn the approval of others. You know, if you, if you offer a, um, a dissenting perspective to your boss you can imagine your boss will not in that moment be thrilled with you because no one, you know, we're all, we all, it turns out there's research on this too. We like it better when people agree with us. Um, we like them better. We even are at risk of thinking they're smarter, which is really a problem. So, so um, part of learning, growing, failing well is about saying, yes, I can take these interpersonal risks and pausing to take a breath and realize, no, I won't die, you know, if so-and-so doesn't like me in that moment. Um, I, I will, in fact, I will be contributing to the team. So that, right. And I, you think you call that reframing, right, to, to taking a step back and, and, you know, essentially looking at the situation in a different way. Can you, can you explain reframing to us a little bit more? Yes. To understand reframing, first you have to understand that we're always framing. We have frames. We look at reality through uh, cognitive maps, uh, through biases and 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 expertise that lead us to pay attention to some aspects of reality and to and to not necessarily notice others. Sorry, so we're we're always looking. We we have the feeling of seeing reality, but we're seeing reality through a frame, and and that frame is not always a helpful frame, right? It's that if you're seeing your work team environment through a frame that says, "Gosh, if I offer a dissenting view, that's not good behavior, or that's not welcome around here," 
Um, that's a terribly unhelpful frame. So you need to pause and reframe. And reframing is deliberate, right? It's it's a it's a um, it's an it's an act of rethinking the situation, saying, "I okay, let's." Let's take a more clear-eyed look at what's really happening, what's really so. And you could reframe. So for instance, your spontaneous frame might be that to disagree with the boss is rude or unhelpful or unwelcome. And you need to reframe that as an act of contribution, you know, an, an act of of helping the team achieve its its goals, its mission, which is both true and possible. Right? It's possible it's it's not really all that hard in the knowledge era to remind yourself that by speaking up honestly in, a, in an uncertain situation about a high-stakes issue, that that is actually a helpful, thoughtful, you know, professional thing to do. Does it help us to look back on situations in our past and, you know, situations where let's say we we didn't reframe does it help us to sort of look back and kind of go through them and say well how could i have reframed that situation um even though you didn't do it but is that is that kind of a useful exercise in terms of getting yourself to do it more kind of in quote real time yes because it's practice it's almost it's um it's a kind of practice field for the for getting good at the skill of doing it and the, and you know the more quickly and, um, and you know, with facility, you can do the reframe, the better off you are going forward. And rather than, I think what you're saying is rather than just wait for the next, you know, moment of, uh-oh, you could look back and use your prior experiences as kind of practice fields where you say, oh, yeah, I remember that time where, like, for example, my, my research failure, you know, where I reacted badly in a way, or at least counterproductively, and it took me hours to come to my senses, right? Whereas I could look back and say, huh, you know, the, the, the reaction could simply be, oh, that's interesting. In fact, people have said that, you know, the, the great discoveries of scientists throughout the ages, they are not really heralded by Eureka. They're heralded by, oh, that's interesting. You know, they're heralded by, that's not what I expected, let me take a closer look. Let me roll up my sleeves and try to figure out what this means, which of course is always the right response, but not always our spontaneous response. So I think, yes, we can practice reframing from episodes in our past that we can look back and say, you know, I didn't really react in that moment as productively as I would have liked. Maybe in an argument with a friend or, you know, maybe in a moment at, at work. I have a question for you as a you know as a as an educator. I, I teach at uh, I teach in uh, the Masters of Finance program at, at UC Berkeley, and one thing I've noticed in my students—they're great, by the way. If any of them are listening, but I mean, a, an issue that I see a lot now is that the programming skills are amazing. The access to data is amazing. The ability to generate empirical work at a fast clip is huge, and what I see is that they spend less and less time investigating the actual work. So they do a lot of it, they produce results, but there's, you know, that, that's like 95% and then only 5% is kind of investigating the work. Um, and I was wondering if, you know, because I, I, I trying to cultivate the idea of, you know, 
hey, you actually, you know, don't just show me positive. Don't show me stuff that works. Show me stuff that 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 doesn't work. And, and I, I really haven't got very far in convincing them that they can do that. I don't know if if you've had that issue at all with you with your students. Yes, you know, I think it's, it's particularly PhD students because, it, as you say, it's so much easier now to generate data, and you can, you know, run the analyses like that, and then suddenly you're just drowning in data and findings, but maybe spending a, a less time proportionally on thinking and thinking what might this mean and what's what's you know what's really interesting here and what what might in fact move the field forward rather than okay here's a little you know, another little brick to add. And I do wonder, I mean, I, I, when I went to graduate school, there were, obviously were computers and computer programs for doing the statistical analysis. But the generation before me, or, you know, 20 years earlier, were, were using punch cards, you know, and before that they had uh, slide rules. And, and, and just think how hard it would, you'd collect data, whether in a lab or in the field, and then you'd Boy, you know, every correlation you wanted to run would be laborious, would, would be hard work. So I imagine, and I've never thought about this before, but I imagine the ratio of thinking and really deep thinking to data gathering and analyzing would have been much higher. Um, and I've always thought that some of the profound insights that come from earlier psychologists, it's just that they had the whole... They had an open terrain, right? There, were, there was less less um, prior findings, so they could study anything. So they sort of found all the interesting things and left the rest of us to to find variations on these themes. But it may be that the quality of their thinking was simply better because they were more in the habit of doing it. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I you know the cost of it just used to cost a lot more to collect data. So um, you know you didn't want to just discard a result and start start again you talk about um this idea of a performance mindset being a um, kind of a detriment to um learning from failures Uh, can you explain um what that idea means yes and that may simply be uh you know the wrong terminology in some people's minds but the um, I, I put a performance mindset up against the contrast is between a performance mindset and a learning mindset. And I will argue that success in most fields today requires a learning mindset because of uncertainty, right? Because of because of novelty, even because of interdependence of factors that will lead something's always going to be a little different. And so when I'm talking about a performance mindset, I said I'm talking about um a mindset that is more focused on the result, on I must perform well, I need to perform well, I want to perform well, than on the processes and activities you need to be attentive to, to actually perform well. So it's, you know, I I care about performance, but my view is that the path toward performing well is through learning. It's so there has to be this tremendous sort of curiosity and openness and and um, willingness to be wrong uh, along the way and not let our egos will will make that feel 
you know, painful and 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 frightening. So we don't want to be wrong with the result that we can miss signals that might indicate that we are wrong. So with a with a learning mindset, with a performance mindset, we don't want to be wrong. Full stop. With a learning mindset, in fact, it would be good to be wrong. Like because then I'd get further. I'd I'd be I'd be able to contribute that next bit of knowledge or achievement that would otherwise have been out of reach for me because of the way I was approaching or thinking about a situation. So it, you have this willingness to be wrong because of ultimately what's at stake, which is the the performance. How do we integrate that with feedback? Yeah, you know, it's like I, I read a lot, particularly with ath- athletics, but 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 also just more generally that to to you know getting better at something isn't just about doing it a lot, right? Because you you know if you've got a bad form or whatever, if you've got a, a bad backhand slice like I do, just doing it a thousand times isn't going to improve it. You need to you need to practice well, and for that you really need feedback from an expert. Um, so that, that, that kind of makes sense. But then you also say in, in your book that, you know, we, <laughs> we don't like uh, negative feedback. We react badly when people say, you know, hey, you're doing it wrong. So how do you avoid falling, how do you, you know, integrate feedback, but avoid falling into this kind of performance mindset where you're like, oh, I'm just, I'm failing to achieve my goal and, you know, see someone else is telling me I'm not, I'm not good. Is, is it that the feedback needs to be about process rather than results or? Well, I think that does help. I mean, I think high quality feedback is concrete and process, um, if it's about process, that probably makes it easier to apply it, right? I mean, I think high quality feedback is the kind that we can put to use. You know, if, if you tell me, oh, you came up short, it's like, yeah, I already knew that, right? That's not really very high quality feedback. If you tell me, you know, the way you, whatever, you know, twisted your arm in that serve um, seems to have let the ball go the wrong way, then, okay, I can I can try twisting it differently. So I, th- I think this goes back to the same basic idea of reframing. We need, because we don't, I think we instinctively don't like criticism. We don't like critical feedback, but we need to like it. We need to learn to like it if we are you know, desiring to get better at anything, um, whether that's your, you know, having a better relationship with your partner or um, playing a better tennis game or doing better at work, right? We, we, if, we, if we value getting better, if we value performance, um, we have to learn, we have to train our little amygdala brains to say, yes, thank you, right? You know, thank you for Thank you for that feedback. You know, thank you for, I mean, we just internally, it has to become a kind of way of thinking. And there are two kinds of feedback that I think are valuable. One is, as you say, from experts, right? Experts can see things that you miss and, and help hopefully provide helpful, concrete feedback that you can try and see how it goes. The other kind of feedback is just feedback from the activity itself, right? If you, if you, um, are really, if you train yourself to pay attention, you know, you can see how, let's say teaching, right? You can see how something lands. And you, if you're, if you're just sort of focused on yourself and delivering your message, you might miss it. But if you're focused on, okay, I'm trying this, I'm thinking about it this way, I'm speaking about it this way, I'm 
asking a question that way. And then I am deeply interested in what happens as a result of my doing it that way. And I can see, ooh, that wasn't, that wasn't quite the enthusiasm I wanted or that wasn't quite the insightful response that I was looking for and say, I wonder how I could do that differently. You have a kind of a trick that you talk about, which is stop, challenge, and choose. And that's, is that a kind of a tool that you've used personally to kind of get better at, at reframing? Is that how you developed it? Or where, where does that come from? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And it's, you know, credit where, cre- credit, where credit is due. Uh, it comes from Larry Wilson, who was a, um, a mentor of mine in, in the late 80s, um, wonderfully creative, visionary um, thinker about, about management and, and, and personal growth um, as well. And he essentially, Larry Wilson essentially boiled down the work and the advice of a cognitive behavioral uh, therapist, psych- a psych- psychiatrist named Maxie Maltzby, um, who had a kind of a six-step process for helping your self-talk to be more, more, more healthy, more rational. And you know, Larry took a look at that, spent a lot of time with Maxie, and he took a look at it and he said, really, it boils down to this, stop, challenge, choose, where stop is just learning and forcing yourself to learn that moment of pause, you know, try to interrupt the flow of thinking, that, that flow that is saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to drop out of graduate school because the data didn't do what I wanted them to do and I'm never going to hold a job, whatever, right? Pause, breathe, and challenge. Take a look at your initial self-talk and challenge it for its validity, is that really true? Right? Is does that really mean I'll never be a good researcher? No. It's it's quite obvious when you even pause long enough to challenge or take a close look at your own thinking. And choose is about reframe. Choose is about picking um, the healthier but still accurate, in fact, more accurate, more rational and more accurate way to think about the situation. Okay, this was disappointing. And what does it mean? Let me spend some time thinking it through. Can you give us an example? I know you talked about the um, your initial research. Um, can you give us another example, kind of from your own life or from your research, where the stop, challenge, choose has, you know, kind of led to a different result than it than it might have? Yeah, you know, I'll I'll try to. Um, I'm sort of thinking, you know, that one very powerful domain um, is is the domain of, of personal relationships, um, whether those are friendships or spouses, um, where your partner does something that you really either didn't expect or didn't like or both, and where does your brain go? You know, I mean, it, it instantly attributes motive to the other person. Like they, they, they did this thing, even, you know, they were late for this event that they knew was really important to me. Ergo, they don't care about me. Ergo, they're selfish, you know, jerk. That is not a, you know, that I don't think that's a, a completely outlandish experience in, in modern lives. And, a, you know, stop, you know, pause. Like, what, what's, the, what's the data here? Person's late. I wonder why they're late, but it's almost forcing yourself just to have enough curiosity, human curiosity to instead of just 
assume I know they're late because they don't care, because da-da-da-da-da-da. Instead, the question is, I wonder why, right? And who knows? I mean, who knows what has happened? And, and certainly one possibility is they don't care, didn't prioritize it. Many other possibilities can immediately occur to our listeners about why um, your, your spouse was late for something you, that was important to you. And, and so just, just challenging, you know, t- being willing to take a look at yourself, right? How, what I, where I just went, which helped, didn't help me, didn't help them, and certainly didn't help the relationship. And the question is, is there an alternative path? Well, yes, the path would be to ask, to inquire, to, to listen, you know, to, to prioritize the relationship over the ego, fundamentally, and choose that path. Choose the path of other orientation, of, of learning, of, of hoping to understand better, of building mutual understanding rather than digging into our respective perspectives. I'm going to make sure my wife listens to this little uh, snippet of the podcast um, on the, <laughs> but, but while, you know, actually, while you're talking about this, toward the end of the book, you say kind of a key aspect of failing well is actually learning to apologize well. Um, and I kind of, I don't know, I sort of but didn't expect to see that um, in this type of book. Why, why is that so important? And, and uh, how, how do we do it well? Yes. Uh, well, you know, this is not something I was thinking about when I set out to write the book. But the more one one of the great things about writing a book like this is it, you know, I've got my research, but it forced me to look at other relevant research to see what to see what I could learn. And certainly, soon as we start talking about failure, the potential, especially in well, not especially, um, just as much in in personal life as in business situations. But the potential, or at least the opportunity to apologize, is not far behind. It's, it's, it's always there, and it's not always easy. And so I started looking at, you know, people who actually study apologies. What do they, what do they find out? What do they learn? And the one, one um, takeaway I got from that was that they think about this as you know, an apology is about repairing a relationship. So when, when you let someone else down or when something goes goes awry that you'd hoped didn't, you know, some failure. First of all, our own brains immediately see all of the causes outside of ourself. You know, that we're, we don't immediately see, ah, hmm, I wonder what my contribution was or how I, you know, how, where I contributed to that. No, we, we very quickly look at forces outside our control. And this is also studied in, in research. But so we don't like to apologize. And I think because at a deep level, it feels like we are taking the blame, which in fact we are, but not not for the whole world, just for our contribution, small or large, to that to that failure, to that breakdown. And so the the point or the purpose of an apology and how it actually works is it's about repairing the relationship. And you cannot do it well and won't do it well unless you are, at least in that moment, prioritizing the relationship over your own ego. And that's, again, not easy uh, for us to do. But if we are prioritizing the relationship over our ego, um, then we are better able to muster what is thought of as a good apology, which is one that does, in fact, take accountability for your part in it. Not over, 
you know, you're not the um, sort of designer of the whole universe, but you, but you are, you do know honestly the things that you did or didn't do that contributed to this outcome. You acknowledge those. You, um, um, you know, cleanly and clearly, hopefully without making too many excuses or explanations, and you offer to make amends. That may be things you can think of easily yourself, or it may be that you ask them what they what they need um, you know, to go forward uh, productively. Uh, but the, the, the essence of a, of, a, of a productive apology, right? an apology that works, is simply that. It, has, it, um, it, it acknowledges the harm. It takes responsibility for your smaller or larger contribution to that harm, and it offers to make amends. Yeah, I thought that was a really, that was a really nice framework and, and an important one. Um, I want to circle back just uh, in the last few minutes and talk about some of the things we can do to, as you say, cultivate intelligent failure. One thing you say is that it's important to identify, obviously, the stakes, right? Um, so, you know, when the stakes are, are low, um, then, hey, let's, let's have fun with this. Let's experiment. That, that's, I guess, the uh, fail, fast, fail, often um, situation. But you, you, which I think is, is kind of intuitive, um, but you also say, hey, um, even when the stakes are high, we can accept failure. We just have to kind of, um, you know, make sure that the, the outcomes aren't catastrophic. So you say, you know, when the stakes are high, what we want to do is run, I think what you say, run pilots, run lots of little experiments, controlled experiments. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Maybe give an example of a high-stakes situation and how right. you might. Right. Yeah. So, I, so and the reason I, the reason I asked that because um, you know most of our uh, listeners or a lot of our listeners are investors. I'm a former investor, and so the stakes are you know important, right? You're you're managing other people's money, so I I think that that kind of resonates with a lot of people out there. Yeah, and I think investors um, either intuitively or through their skill and expertise understand this point right that, that you don't you don't invest an amount that's greater than you can afford to lose in a highly uncertain uh, investment it, it, you know that's that's sort of <laughs> and if you do you may uh, come to regret that and 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 realize that was a uh, you know a, a failure that that um, was larger than you comfortable with and and so you you promise to do better next time but but um you know, I realized as you were just, or you were asking this question that the stakes being high is a bit ambiguous out of context because, you know, in some sense the stakes are always high. It's my career, or it's you know our our uh, um, planet, or what have you. So it's it's more concrete than that. It's like what are the stakes in this moment for this uh, decision or action? And so let's say, for example, I saw Oppenheimer over the. The movie Oppenheimer over the over the holiday break, and you know the stakes were enormously high for the development of the atomic bomb, and truly, before they detonated the first pilot, no one knew what would happen, and there was even you know possibility that it could have been catastrophic. But they were they went out of their way to have this experiment in a remote place where there are no people. Where they're, you know, put the themselves, the scientists, a, a mile away from the, you know, the pilot, the the first uh, test, 
So the stakes were high in a grand sense, you know, the war, the, 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 the scientific stakes. But they know you don't, you don't do this the first time in real, in real life, right? You, you go behind closed doors and you see, you, you conduct the smallest possible test that you, can, um, that you can conduct to learn more. This would be true in investment. This would be true, you know, in, in science, in R&D. I have many stories in the book about companies with, you know, sort of new product introductions that either were colossal, not very smart failures, maybe even basic failures in some cases, and others that were, were beautifully managed um, intelligent failures along the way to finally a successful launch. And it's pretty straightforward. I mean, the logic of this is very straightforward. So what gets in the way? You know, and part of it is the emotional desire to be right the first time. Part of it is is um, organizational politics and, and you know, who who has power and who has what at stake that will often, you know, lead organizations as organizations to make rather stupid mistakes, uh, or, you know, create failures that were not just in retrospect, but even leading into them were preventable and not smart. So the science of failing well is about sizing up the context or designing the context to be one where it's going to be okay if this fails, as it very well might, because we're in a in an uncertain domain. When there's uncertainty, there's, there's you know, the very real possibility of failure. So Let's assume this might fail. We hope it doesn't, but let's assume it does, and let's make sure that the consequences of the failure um, are ones we're willing to bear. It kind of loops back to this notion of psychological safety that you said right at the beginning, that you need, a, you need a, to create an environment where failure is acceptable. I think you call it blame. Is it blameless reporting? So it's like you, you're kind of rewarded for reporting failure it, you know, there's no there's no blame associated with it. It's it's contributing to improving the process, right? And that wouldn't you know that wouldn't intuitively make sense if you were talking about something utterly straightforward, you know, utterly programmatic, you know, something for which there is a clear recipe. Um, you know, why and, and you you fail to follow it? Like, you know, we still want to hear from you, but you know, but if you take as a given that there's a lot of uncertainty. And it makes so much sense to hear about things quickly, not slowly. Then a policy of blame-free reporting is just plain logical. And, you know, one objection you hear a lot to that is, okay, but, you know, I, you know, people have to be accountable for their mistakes, right? They have to, you know, you have to take ownership, responsibility. So how can we beat our co competitors if we're sort of creating this environment of, ah, it's, it, uh, thanks for reporting the mistake, you know. So but you say that's a false dichotomy. Um, can you kind of explain that a little bit? Yeah, that's conflating honesty with laziness, in a sense. Right? That's saying that um, if we don't want to have an environment uh, where people don't do their best, you know, and, and if we have an environment where people know it's okay to speak the truth when something doesn't work out, that somehow uh, means they aren't doing their best. Well, that could make sense on an assembly line. And even there, I, I'll challenge that idea. But it, just in the most predictable, certain, knowable contexts, you could make that equation. But as soon as we deviate from that context 
and get anywhere in the direction of volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous territory, then the relationship falls apart pretty quickly. Then um, you, you realize that excellence is going to come from, in part, candor about what's really happening. Right? That if we want to beat those competitors, which we do, um, we're going to have to be the place where people speak up quickly and openly and experiment smartly. And they don't experiment with things without checking it out with other, other experts. Like, hey, I'm thinking of trying this. No one's ever done it before. What do you think? Well, you immediately see something, a flaw in that idea that I missed. And then you've made my idea better because now I can tweak it and try again. And that's a team sport. So, you know, so it's, it's really about understanding at a very deep level that excellence today, yes, involves doing our very best to avoid basic mistakes and the failures they produce, right? In known territory, through training, through speaking up quickly, you know, through checklists and all the rest, we can produce excellence through by just following the rules. But in more uncertain, more variable contexts, the only way to produce excellence is by... Um, a genuine commitment to ongoing honesty, learning, experimenting, and pivoting as soon as more is learned. Right? So it's just understanding, it's, it's being able to conceptualize excellence in a new way. Yeah, that, I think that that's such an important point, especially for people who are, you know, in investing, because that, that, that totally describes the environment that we're facing. One last question I wanted to ask in that kind of spirit of kind of openness and talking about mistakes and ideas is um, at, you talk about 3M in the book and, you know, the, the history of the post-it notes. I think a lot of people are, are at least on a surface familiar with that uh, story. But you, you say that, you know, it's not just a quote-unquote accidental discovery. It, it only really had, they only kind of took the discovery of the adhesive with certain properties to a a product that you know became ubiquitous because they had an open culture of sharing ideas and and they would have these forums where people you know said what they were working on that reminded me of a situation where i i uh, before i started my own firm i worked at a large bank and we used to have these kind of global research you know offsites where people would present stuff they're working on so it's a kind of an attempt to kind of cultivate that openness but then every year a few people would leave and go somewhere else. And I was thinking to myself, hold on, I just explained all the stuff that I'm working on to 50 people, five of which are now no longer at the firm. And the next year, another five people would leave. I, I'm, I'm kind of making the numbers up, but you know what I'm saying. So how, as a company, do you encourage openness at the same time, protect your intellectual property? Right, it's a tension, but you know, life is full of tensions. Businesses are full of tensions. And we can't just wish them away. We actually have to confront them head on and say, how do we want to manage this tension? And one way, this particular tension, is what you really want to do is make your place the place that nobody wants to leave. Now, I know people will leave for various reasons. Maybe they have to move to another city for another reason, or, or maybe there's no upward potential here, or they get a better offer. But the, you know, the, I think the best way to confront that tension is to really say, make this the kind of place where you don't want to leave because of the kinds of colleagues, you know, the, the, um, 
the other people you get to brainstorm with in those in those sessions because of the quality of the clients you get to serve because of the even the facilities that you occupy you know all the things that companies do uh, to make their place attractive it's really like two markets right there's the market of succeeding in the um, customer marketplace but there's also the market of succeeding in in wooing employees to your uh, organization and and developing them and keeping them but you'll never be able to have a hundred percent you know leak proof um, workforces so you have to just deal with that reality by staying ahead uh, you know by by doing what you do um, and trying to do it better uh, than than everyone else I, we're, we're gonna run it running out of time here I want to maybe ask you a final question which is a little maybe a little unusual, a philosophical one. There's a great book called uh, Peak Mind by a neuroscientist called Amishi Jha. She works at the uh, University of Miami. And what I really liked about her book is it's um, the neuroscience, the biology behind why meditation works, right? She's investigating the causal mechanisms um, and then she's saying, okay, you know, based on our research, here's the minimum practice you need to do. Here's the type of practice and here's the biological reasons why that, that works. So it's sort of like there's this Eastern philosophy and then there's this kind of Western scientific backing. And that, that kind of appealed to me. And as I was reading your book, I was thinking that it felt like you were doing something similar with Stoicism, like the Stoic philosophy of, you know, any event that happens, there's good in it right? It's not the event itself that causes distress. It's the evaluation, the reaction to the event. In fact, you talk about Maxi Maltby saying that, you know, it's, it's not the stimuli that causes the problems. It's our evaluation of them. And that to me felt like a, a lot like Stoic philosophy. Have you, do you think about your work in, in that context at all? You know, I don't, but it's, I think um, the Stoic philosophy has a lot in common with cognitive psychology and clinical cognitive psychology as well, because I think that that, that um, psychologists have thought about this same issue separately. Of course, everybody's in their little silos thinking separately and not necessarily learning enough from each other. But the idea that things happen, there are stimuli in your lives and then there's, it feels like the emotion is almost instantaneous, but their argument would be that, no, it's the way we think about it may often be instantaneous. And that leads to the emotions, um, particularly the, the problematic ones, or the, un, the um, painful ones. And certainly Stop, Challenge, Choose is about challenging that way of spontaneously thinking and saying, is there another valid, maybe even more valid way to think about it. And that mastering that skill, that skill of challenging your initial thinking for better, more healthy reactions that will in fact then make you more effective in your in your chosen field, um, it's it's just um, it's just true. and it's it's um, it's it's not surprising that different fields have noticed, um, a similar phenomenon. And I open at chapter five with the Viktor Frankl quote of, uh, um, of, you know, between stimulus and response, there is a space, right? And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in that choice lies our freedom. 
And that's, I don't think he was a stoic philosopher. He was a psychiatrist trapped in a concentration camp. Um, and it's a deep and profound insight. And it's, it's, it's an insight that the more, I certainly can't practice this myself day in and day out, but the, the more able we are to practice that, certainly the more effective we are and probably the more joyful we can be. Well, that's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great way to end. So, um, you know, when you're stopped, uh, challenging and choosing this year, choose to read, um, Amy's book. Um, it's called the right kind of wrong, the science of feel of failing. Well, uh, Amy, thanks for taking the time to, uh, to join us. And, uh, we really wish you all the best, uh, going forward. Thank you so much again for having me. Okay. And with that, I'm going to pass it back over to Niels. Thank you so much, Amy and Kevin, for an absolutely fascinating look into how we can all learn to fail well. If you listened to Kevin's last conversation about Ray Dalio and Bridgewater, you may, like I did while I was listening, wonder what kind of interpersonal climate among his teams they are promoting and how safe you can be when admitting failure. But in any event, there is a lot for all of us to take away from Amy's work that really is a lot of tailored practices, skills, and mindsets to help us replace shame and blame with curiosity, vulnerability, and personal growth. And I'm pretty sure once you've read the book, you'll never look at failure the same way again. That's it for today. Make sure you go and follow Amy's and Kevin's work, as well as getting a copy of their most recent books, because as you can tell from today's conversation, some of these ideas are topics that may not be discussed enough on mainstream media. From Kevin and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.